This is Austin Real Estate Investing. Austin Real Estate Investing. We'll be discussing real estate investing in Austin, Texas, and bringing you experts from all different sectors of the real estate game. Your host, Jordan Moorhead, is a real estate agent and investor in Austin and is here to help you get started or to build your portfolio and explore new strategies. Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead. This is the Austin Real Estate Investing Show. And today we have Michael Becker on here. Michael Becker is a real estate investor. He's been in it for 10 years. He's done over 10,000 units. They currently hold 6,000 units and have over a billion dollars of assets under management in DFW, Austin, Tyler, and even Kyle, Texas. He is a co-host of the Old Capital Podcast and also the host of the Multifamily Investing Show. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, Jordan, appreciate you having me on. Doing well. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. So real quick, a little bit, who are you and how are you involved with real estate investing? Yeah, it's uh, good. Appreciate the opportunity. So Michael Becker, I'm uh, actually based in Dallas, Texas. I'm a principal of a company called SPI Advisory. And that uh, that is a company I founded with my partner, Sean Mabrak. And so Sean is uh, based in Austin. So we have uh, we have two offices. I head up Dallas. He, head up, he uh, heads up Austin. And uh, what we do is we're a private equity firm, really, that raises money and buys uh, multifamily projects in Texas. Our two primary focuses are, uh, are Austin, Austin, Greater Austin Market and, uh, and Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, with most of the stuff that we, we've owned, we started in uh, buying stuff in Dallas and then uh, got to Austin a few years ago. Wish we would have got there a little, little earlier than we did, but uh, glad we got uh, we own like 1,400 units, I think, in the, the Greater Austin area, over four deals. Kind of, kind of joke that we're kind of the king of Kyle because uh, Kyle's a, a town about a, about a twenty minute tra- drive with no traffic, just south of uh, south of Austin. So kind of like a southern uh, suburb of of the Greater Austin area. And we bought three deals, own about a thousand units, and and uh, and Kyle. And so Kyle was a was a field about twenty years ago, and all of a sudden the whole city popped up because the uh, growth of the Greater Austin area. But prior to, prior to uh, owning owning uh, real estate, my uh, my background uh, professionally was in the uh, banking business. So I was a commercial real estate lender for many years and specialized the last five or so years of my lending career as a uh, in, in multifamily. But I have experience in office, industrial, uh, retail, so kind of the four major food groups of uh, income producing commercial real estate. I got a background loaning on that. Through the lending process, realized I was on the, the wrong side of all those deals. Kind of better to be the, the borrower than the lender. So I went out mm-hmm. about a decade ago, started buying a bunch of single family homes out of the Great Recession. I uh, realized that wasn't very scalable and transitioned over into multifamily in 2013 and, you know, 10,000 units, uh, two podcasts later, uh, here I am on your show. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, uh, for people who don't know, Kyle is a city south of Austin, right off of 35 in between Austin and San Antonio. So growing like crazy, great place to be. Um, of course, Austin, Dallas, Tyler, all great places to be too. But uh, so I really hadn't heard a lot about how you got started, Michael. So you said you started with some single families. Was that just yeah. all on your own? Yeah. So uh, I'm in my early 40s. So I kind of cut my teeth professionally kind of uh, pre-Great Recession. This is when I was kind of loaning money in the mid 2000s. And uh, when I first part of my career, you know, it was a, a situation where you couldn't you couldn't make a bad loan because everything just kept going up. And then one day that all changed. And uh, 2008, and and then it kind of went went bad. And I worked for a, a regional bank that was based out of Texarkana, Texas, old small town. 
and they moved to Dallas in 2004 and I was like their fourth employee. And that's kind of really where I got my start, uh, out, out of college was, was working there. And, um, it was a really great experience. And, you know, my bank actually ended up getting purchased by Wells Fargo in 2008. Oh. And, uh, that, that probably saved us cause we would have certainly failed. We had a bunch of land loans and development loans and all the, all the crap that, uh, that we were doing pre, uh, pre great recession. And so I did a couple of years of problem loan workout, uh, just kind of working out all these loans that, that we had on the books. We had to kind of try to get repaid and, you know, it was, uh, it was a really challenging time, Jordan, but with the benefit of reflection, it was uh, probably the best education you could ever get. I got, you know, a graduate level degree in crap not to do. <laughs> How do you work out of it? And uh, I got paid to get that education. I didn't have mm-hmm. to pay the economic price like all my clients that we had to work these loans out. So it was really difficult conversations and, and challenging times, but it, you know, was invaluable. And then that was really kind of the foundation of my education that really kind of led me into, uh, into what I do today. And, and, um, you know, kind of started loaning out of the great recession. Really the only thing that was working was multifamily. That was the first thing that started kind of coming back. So, you know, when you only have one option to make put food on your plate, you kind of, yeah. kind of gravitate to it and really just double down, triple down on uh, on multifamily and really specialized in it and started just doing loan after loan after loan uh, on all these broken deals coming out of the great recession. Um, and then it's kind of started reserving all my clients and, you know, they're all great, smart people, but uh, they weren't, you know, that much smarter than me. And I had a whole lot more resources and some of these people, you know, didn't have a whole lot of money. They just kind of had the cojones and, and put their, you know, put their neck out there and did the deals and figured it out. And they were just making, you know, I was making a good living and they were just getting rich. And so I kind of figured I need a piece of the pie. And uh, I was a little, little gun shy with uh, going into like a, a partnership out of the gate. Because I said a lot of the problems I just had kind of been working out recently, a lot of them were partnership issues that kind of ballooned into some other issues on, on top of, you know, poor investment decisions. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to do something I do with my own money. So I knew I could do a little single family house. So the first deal I did was a three bed, two bath house in Mesquite, Texas. I think we paid 75 or 80 grand, put about $10,000 into it and rented it out for like 1100 bucks a month. And I cash flowed five or hundred or so dollars a, a month. And then I was able to refinance it, pull the money out and do another deal. And so kind of, kind of went that way. And that was a good, um, you know, good confidence builder to, to kind of do these projects on a small scale that I knew if, uh, if I lost the $20,000 I put down or, or whatever it was, it'd be, it'd be a bad day, but I wouldn't be on the street either. So that was a, a good thing, but just through that process realized that wasn't very scalable. Mm-hmm. So then, um, and then I just, I realized I had a hell of a lot of knowledge a lot of relationships uh, I just kind of developed through my banking, um, my professional day job. And I just wasn't utilizing my resources I had available to me to the best of my ability. That's when I decided to transition. So I, I actually uh, ended up making a loan along the way, some guy from California. And that's how I met my now partner, Sean. At the time, he was working for a, a broker out of Beverly Hills that helped high network people from LA and Orange County buy properties in Texas. I made a loan and that's kind of how we got together. So he was kind of sick after a few years of making his boss rich. I was sick of making the bank rich. Like we kind of formed uh, formed our company. He had access to some capital. I was in the market and we just started doing it. So the first deal uh, we did, uh, multifamily deals in 2013, 120 unit deal called the Bay Island Apartments in Garland, Texas, like an Eastern suburb of Dallas. I think we paid 3.8 or $3.9 million. So if you do that math, that's kind of like high 20s a door, maybe yeah, 30,000 unit. I uh, sold it uh, two and a half years later for about six and a half million bucks. Uh, and, you know, kind of 10,000 units later, like that's the, there we go. Right. It's kind of off, 
50 something deals later we're here you know here we are it's been amazing that uh it feels like we've been in the sometimes it feels like i've been in business for 10 minutes and sometimes it feels like it's been 100 years it's been uh, amazing to kind of see the, the growth of what we've been able to accomplish yeah especially in dallas and austin over the last 10 years you've seen a lot so how many single family deals did you do before you got into multifamily investing? I did uh, did 16 of them. And then I also self-managed them all. And so I had a, a job and little kids and, you know, 16 problems on, on the side having to deal with whatever uh, comes with self-managing single family houses. Okay. And was it all just single family or did you duplex? Yeah. Four no, I think there, I never had a duplex. I just had all okay. just, you know, three or four bed, you know, down garden variety houses and mm -hmm. at first it was a lot of just foreclosures because there was no one wanted any of this crap so like you could buy these houses for you know eighty eighty thousand dollars sixty thousand mm -hmm. dollars and you know after renovating uh, they got to be worth you know 120 130 when i sold them if i if i would have been able to hold them to today i'm sure they're all worth 200 dollars. i mean it's crazy okay. to see the growth of uh what it is but you know i needed some of that capital out of those to go into the, the apartment business. So I don't have too many regrets. It would have been nice to figure out to hold those a couple more years, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do to, to, to grow. Yeah, to grow to 10,000 units. So I, I think that you did the right thing. Um, so question I think a lot of people are going to have, and I, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, I have too, is do you recommend that people start doing those small deals and then look into doing something like you're doing if they wanna do what you do? I mean, uh, I don't think there's a one size fits all. So it really kind of depends on your situation. So I didn't need it uh, with the benefit of hindsight. I could have just jumped into the, the multifamily. But, you know, I was in my my mid 30s, early to mid 30s. I had been working for a long period of time. I had a good paying job. I was a good boy and saved my money and lived below my means and things like mm -hmm. that. So I had, I had a little bit of capital I accumulated. You know, I wasn't born rich, so I had to kind of accumulate it through, through uh, you know, saving and living below my means. So if you have some money and you have a little bit of professional experience, I think it's unnecessary to, to, mm -hmm. to do it. If uh, if you, a lot of people I, I observed, I've joined some of the, like the mentoring clubs, which are a lot more prominent today than, than what it was, you know, a decade ago when I was kind of getting going. Uh, there was that Lifestyles Unlimited really was a, the biggest one in, in Texas, which I know that office in Austin slash San Antonio based out of Houston and one in Dallas. And I made a lot of loans to their members back when I was uh, a banker. And that's kind of really where I, I observed a lot of people just kind of with the limited experience get into it. But that costs money. So, you know, it's, um, you know, multiple tens of thousands of dollars to, uh, to kind of get into some of those programs. So, but if you're, you get some money, that's a way to shortcut it. If you're young and you're trying to come up, I mean, I think the single family route's a, a good good way where you can, wholesale a deal, but get a little bit of money and then buy a house to flip and get a little bit of money or, you know, maybe transition to some rentals and kind of, kind of stair step your way up. Um, I think that's, that's a good way of getting into it. Or, you know, a lot of people that, you know, really, if you want to do kind of what I did, uh, I think, you know, if you're really young, kind of come out of college and you're interested, maybe getting a job working at a bank <clears throat> like I did, or working for a broker that does investment sales and commercial real estate, and multifamily, that's a good way to kind of be their analyst and you get to see a lot of a lot of deals that way and kind of maybe grow into a junior broker or a lot of people work for firms like my firm now and, you know, uh, private equity shops or, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, bigger institutional version of, of what I do. Mm -hmm. And that's a good way to learn the business. So that's a way if you want to get an education and get paid to learn uh, coming out of college and you have the ability to do that, go be an analyst for a bank, uh, investment sales shop or a private equity firm. 
that does this. And I think that's a good way to get a lot of a lot of knowledge. You just got to be careful though, because if you get you catch the employee mentality working at some of those firms, sometimes it's hard. Especially like uh, there's not very many people that have come out. Of, there's more people who come out of a private equity shop or an investment sales shop compared to like coming out as a banker. I don't think there's too many bankers that come out because you get um, around a bunch of people by nature are conservative, so you kind of get this risk aversion beating your head, which which mm-hmm. is great to be risk averse, but at some point you got to take a little bit of risk to do a deal because that's what you do. And, you know, bankers are, are tend not to be, uh, not to be the type that can go out and take, uh, take that type of risk. So I was able to break, uh, break the shackles of, uh, of that off my mind and, and go out and do these deals. Yeah, absolutely. So, so many times I hear people saying, Hey, don't start small. You should just start big. And I have my own thoughts about that, but you know, it's good to hear different perspectives on that always. And I, I think the most important thing is that people just get started doing something. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get rich off a 401k or get rich off saving or you're not going to have the lifestyle you want off that stuff. So, yeah. yeah and, and, you know, like it's an inertia thing and everyone's got to start somewhere. And if you don't take that first step that you run a, you run a mile one step at a time. So you gotta, you gotta get going. And you're, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I learned, like, especially a lot of these people that are like get these kind of seminar junkies. They got all these different seminars. They want to learn and learn and read a million books and Mm -hmm. overanalyze everything. You know, at some point you got to do, you can't just keep learning and Mm -hmm. you're never going to be a hundred percent comfortable when you do your first deal. I mean, hell I'm never comfortable on any deal we do now. You know, it's a lot easier today because we have a, you know, success track record to fall back upon, but Mm -hmm. there's always that little lingering doubt. Like what if I miss something and you're never going to be comfortable and you got to be able to live and get comfortable with not being fully comfortable. And that's the only, the only way you're going to be able to actually take action and do deals. And there's, I'm sure there's a lot smarter people than me that just can't take that, pull that trigger. And maybe they know more about this or that, but uh, unless you actually take action and pull the trigger, then, you know, what is this all education, you know, actually, actually good for. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Michael, a little bit about, you know, see you invest in Austin and the Dallas area. So a little bit more about Austin, you know, it sounds like you guys have had great success up in DFW. So why, why come down to Austin too? I I hear your partners down here, but you you guys could keep just investing in DFW. Why move down here too? Yeah. So we, we, uh, you know, he, when we started our company, he was in Los Angeles, he grew up at Cedar Park and then uh, went to UT and then mm-hmm. t- followed his now wife, uh, his girlfriend at the time. She went to architectural school at USC. So he kind of followed her out there and got a job. And that's kind of how we met. He's a few years younger than me. And uh, and so it was uh, as we were kind of taking off and growing, you know, we need to hire more people. And I was like, we're not hiring people in L.A. I was like, there's no point of you being in L.A. once you once you move home. So he ended up moving home, which was Austin. Yeah. And uh, we opened up our office there and he was there for a couple of years before we bought our first deal in the, the Austin area. And um, it really, I think I think for us, it was it was like the natural progression. I mean, Dallas-Fort Worth is, is quite a bit bigger than, than Austin. You know, when people come oh, yeah. from, you know, if you're in California, you're coming to, you think of Texas, but there's really kind of four major metropolitan areas and a bunch of secondary markets. So mm-hmm. most likely you're going to focus on Dallas-Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, or Houston. And so I kind of compare and contrast real quick. Um, to me, Houston wasn't, isn't investable to me and what I want to accomplish. Uh, not that it's not a, a good market in certain respects, but it's, you know, not nearly as diversified. You got a lot of Got a lot of energy and uh, energy dependence, energy jobs down there, and it's coastal, so you get 
a wind, uh, wind that wind and storms that could, could impact you a lot more. Your insurance is a lot higher. The city itself has no actual zoning in it. So it the, the city of Houston is weird where you can have a, a church next to an apartment building, next to a strip club, next to an elementary school. So it's like a, a weird thing where it's kind of street by street, block by block, where the other metros, generally speaking, you got the good part of town and you got the bad part of town. And it's pretty easy to kind of understand. Houston, I think you're more likely to make a mistake. So we just have chosen just to avoid it because I, I just don't want to make that mistake. San Antonio to me is boring and uh, nothing necessarily wrong with it. It's kind of slow and plotting and mm-hmm. you got the military and this, you know, maybe at this moment in time, actually I'm kind of get, starting to get interested because of supply numbers. New delivery is, is uh, a lot lower than say Dallas or, or Austin where the last several years has been kind of on par from a percentage basis. So San Antonio might be a little more interesting to me now, but I just been kind of, it just didn't excite me. And you don't have, dynamic growth that you have in Dallas and Austin. So in my mind, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin are kind of the two premier of the four uh, that you want to invest in. And Dallas is a lot more diverse. You know, we got, you know, a variety of industries. It's a lot bigger. We're like 7.7 million people or something like that in the metropolitan area. There's like 800, over 800,000 market rate apartment units in Dallas, Fort Worth. Austin is a little less diverse um, and smaller. There's about 200,000 market rate units, about 2.3 million people and growing every day in Austin. Um, and, but, you know, you have government because it's a state capital. You have tech, you have education. There's others. It's diverse, uh, relatively speaking, but compared mm-hmm. to Dallas, it's not quite as diverse. But there's like a cachet about it. And people ask me to kind of pair the two markets all the time, Jordan, because I'm in both the markets. So people that invest with us or what's the difference? So my, one of my little sayings is, you know, people uh, people move to Austin because they want to be in Austin. People move mm-hmm. to Dallas because they got a job. Right. And that's kind of the difference. It's like a yeah. cool cachet thing with the, mm-hmm. you know, Dallas is flat and goes on forever. Or Austin, you got some. You know, lakes and rivers and topography and it's the hill country and mm-hmm. uh, there's just like a scene to it so it's uh you know there's, there's it's, it's certainly growing like like crazy with i mean you know dallas is seemingly every every day we're getting like a corporate reload and austin was kind of like every week you'd see one and now here recently it's just like big corporate reload after big corporate reload with really high quality name tech companies you know moving or expanding their presence in the greater Austin Metro. So it's just like, it seems like it's absolutely on fire. So for us, it was a natural extension as we wanted to grow and expand our footprint. And it seemed like Austin, the first part of our career, the cap rates were a lot lower than what we could buy in Dallas. And the, the mm-hmm. match just didn't quite make sense to us. Uh, and then there was a period in time where it seemed like Austin had overbuilt, the market kind of paused, Dallas kept going. And it felt like a relative opportunity to shift out of Dallas into a, a better perception market like Austin seems to be a little higher growth than Dallas and all things being equal. I'd rather own in the greater Austin area than Dallas if all things are equal, mm-hmm. which they weren't for a long time. And yeah. and they were, or seemingly it felt like they were. And now Austin seemingly kind of, um, they're both growing, but Austin's kind of accelerating at a faster pace in real time. First quarter of 2021, Austin is, you know, exploding. Um, and, and, and the greater thing cap rates are compressing, Prices are going up. I mean, it's it, the the vesper demand is off the charts in Austin right now. Absolutely. You know, if you pay attention to something like the Austin Business Journal, and I recommend anybody listening, if you want to learn about, you know, the the goings on in Austin from a business perspective, look at that. Um, every it seems like every couple of days, there's some big company, like you said, moving here. So it's really hard to keep up with everything that's going on, and it's. You need to pay attention to the information you get because 
some of these smaller media sources that aren't don't have to be so credible will say, oh, you know, like Samsung's the most recent one that's talking about coming here. They'll say, oh, Samsung's coming here. So make sure you're paying attention to where you're getting your information. Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here, and I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing, and I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Yeah, oh, I have a subscription both to the Dallas and the Austin Business Journal, and I you know read it every day. Mm -hmm. And it's just uh, that's a, a great way, especially if you're trying to learn a market. If I was going to go to uh, you know wherever Nashville, I would get the Nashville Business Journal and just pay attention to all the the goings on. I think that's a, a great great resource, Jordan. Yeah, and I think you know you you have a something particular that you do. You always talk about don't go into the the war zones or the bad areas. So. Tell us a little bit more about that. I know a lot of people will love to invest in Class C areas. Yeah, uh, so I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with Class C. I just uh, don't buy in the hood is uh, kind of the, the less <laughs> yeah. eloquent way of saying that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, that's something when when I um, was the, going through the Great Recession, really I kind of observed four things that mm -hmm. really, or uh, one or some combination of these generally was a case uh, when, when these deals that went bad that I had to work out, they, they happened. So on the multifamily space in particular, you know, they bought in a really high crime, lower socioeconomic area. So when mm -hmm. there is um, a blip in the economy, those properties tend to feel it the most. And uh, seemingly the government's doing their best to paper over all our current uh, problems coming out of the, the, the COVID recession that we're, yeah. uh, we just came out of, I guess, technically, but, you know, still kind of looming over. So where there is collection issues uh, in the multifamily space in Texas, they are concentrated in a greater percentage in the workforce housing lowest uh, part of the lowest part of the uh, investment grade uh, properties. So those those areas are tough. Uh, the second thing I observed where people would come into these deals undercapitalized, they didn't do good physical inspections, they didn't set aside the money up front to cure all the deferred maintenance that they know about the property and implement their their business plan, upgrade the units, whatever. They try to do it out of cash flow. That yeah. just didn't work very well. Um, the other thing I observed, especially back in, you know, 15 years ago, it was a thing that would go on. There was a lot of California 1031 buyers coming to, coming to Dallas and all, all Texas in general, Arizona in general. So like I inherited a loan once where there was like a UPS driver that had a single family house and he sold it in Riverside or whatever, bought a 30 unit deal in suburban Dallas and uh, tried to self-manage it while he was a UPS driver in California. And the end of that story wasn't wasn't very good. So putting proper management in place, you know, hiring good local reputable management company, that certainly would uh, would would overcome a lot of the the risk of these deals. And then finally, people put like the improper debt on them. Uh, back then, you could lever up to like eighty five percent loan to cost, and then they can they hell even get to like ninety or ninety five percent if you put some mezzanine or prep equity on it. So you had like no margin for error, one little hiccup, you have no equity that's going to come wipe you out. So you know, making sure um, either you put you know a little bit lower leverage, put a long term fixed rate loan on it if you know you want to own it, or there's nothing necessarily wrong with a floating rate or bridge loan, but maybe just lower your leverage a little bit more. Maybe don't do seventy five, maybe do sixty five or seventy. So you got a little bit more margin for error when you know, it's time to refinance or if rates go up, you're not just at the absolute limit. So if you do kind of those four things, right, that's probably 95% of the risk in, in these deals and in, in my experience. So that's kind of really what we focused when we started, we did workforce housing, we did 60s and 70s vintage, that's kind of your C class in Texas, mm -hmm. and we transitioned into the B class, which think like 1980s for like kind of year construction. 
now what we focus on is pretty much kind of A to A minus. So, you know, generally speaking, 20 years or younger and, okay. uh, and vintage and, and really it's a function of, of two things. One is we were really successful with a lot of our first deals and returned a bunch of money. So our ability to track capital is much greater today than what it was. We started out, but the real reason is the cap rates have kind of compressed upon themselves, uh, regardless of property grade. So uh, what what used to be, you know, a three percentage point or 300 basis point spread between a class A and a class C deal eight years ago. Now, regardless of irrespective of property grade or location, pretty much everything is the, the cap rates on top of themselves. Um, so to me, it doesn't make as much sense to say, to pay the same or similar cap rate for something built in 1974 that I could for something built in 2004 or 2014 even, mm-hmm. if the cap rates are all the same and I have the ability to raise a larger amount of money, that's a better um, uh, risk-adjusted return in, in my mind. I know you kind of maybe give up the, the value add or the ability to push as much as you can by renovating some of these older properties and raise the rents, but you know that that's a better trade for our investment uh, profile right now. You also give up a lot of the risk too when you're buying something newer. That's right, for sure. Because these these sewer systems are cast iron sewers that are built in the mm-hmm. '70s. They don't get better with age, you know. So like yeah. over every every year, you have more and more repairs that maybe don't hit your net operating income line or your NOI line because they're like capitalized or put below. Mm-hmm. But your plumber wants to be paid in cash, so it takes actual cash to mm-hmm. to pay them, and that's cash you can't distribute to your investors or, or do whatever with at the property. Absolutely. So, Michael, you've done a ton of deals. I, a different question we ask here on the podcast is just to tell us about a deal that went wrong for you. So maybe yep. listeners could learn more about it and not do those same things themselves. So fortunately, uh, I've been in the market where you couldn't hardly do a bad deal because yeah. the market's bailed right. you out and everything. But, you know, not saying we certainly we certainly made some mistakes. Sure. Uh, so maybe just something you've seen that you'd tell people not to do. And you already listed a few of them, too. So making yeah. sure your debt's in Yeah, yeah. so the sure two, two things come to money. mind when you ask me that question. The, the single biggest mistake we made repeatedly when we first started out was putting um, long-term fixed rate debt on our, our, our properties when we had a three-year business plan. So our car genius idea at the time was we're gonna we'll get into this deal. Interest rates are about as low as where we're gonna see. You know they're five percent interest. You know five percent, and we get a whole year of interest only on a ten year loan. And that was like that was great because you know it was it was like over six percent, and you had no IO right before that. So we thought we'd buy this thing, put a fixed rate loan on it, and then sell it in a few years, and the buyer could come assume our mortgage at what would be a below interest rate mortgage and uh, be accretive to our situation. Well, the exact opposite happened. The interest rates went lower and now we're what, 3% or south of that. Mm -hmm. And one year of interest only turned into three, turned into five, like uh, pretty quickly. So what um, the way these yield maintenance prepayment penalties or defeasance prepayment penalties work is um, if you, I'm paying a five and the current and the interest rates drop and the current loan would be four, my prepayment penalty goes up. So the buyer, when I pay my loan, can then go buy some bonds and replicate that same income stream. And the opposite is true. If the rates go up and my loan is lower, the prepayment penalty will go down. So it really kind of anchored us in and we, we left tens and tens of millions of dollars on the table by either having to absorb a prepayment penalty or sell it on a loan assumption at a lower price so the buyer can make the economics terms work. So, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to fixed rate debt. I'm starting to get allergic to yield maintenance and defeasance prepays. Mm-hmm. That is something that uh, that I, I really, I paid the price on it. So I know a lot of people 
the last couple of years, what, what we've been doing, and I hear a lot of other people talk and they're doing the same thing. So hopefully I've saved at least some soul along the way through talking about it. Um, they've been doing a lot of Freddie floaters, which have like a one point prepay after your lockout. And that's a lot more flexible um, prepayment penalty. So that that is one lesson I learned the hard way. Uh, as far as a deal story goes, a third deal I've done was, was, was a, certainly a third deal I did was certainly a challenging deal. Now, the end of the story turned out OK, but it was a little sketch along the way. Uh, we bought a deal that in a city called Farmers Branch, like a first uh, first in suburb north of Dallas. And uh, it was a, built, a property built in 1968. It's like 250 units. And uh, it had a ton of foundation issues. And so I had a bunch of deferred maintenance and the foundations were a problem. And the sewer system underneath it was a problem, which was probably causing a lot of the foundation issues. And so we knew all that walking in and we had a really healthy capital budget. And I think we had 26 buildings, if I remember, and something like 20 of the 26 buildings had to have foundation work done to them. It was like oh, a wow. crazy crazy deal. And it was not only exterior peers, it was interior peers. And uh, the, the tip that should have got us uh, known that we're going to be in some, some, uh, some headaches besides that was uh, as we're buying it as part of like the, the closing at the escrow, the seller had to settle a longstanding lawsuit with the city of Farmers Branch over, over the foundation code enforcement citations they were getting. So that's kind of foreshadows where the story's about to go. So we get in it and we end up, uh, you know, kind of, it was like a puzzle because we had to, uh, every building we did, we had to vacate the entire first floor of that building, go in, jackhammer the slab, lift the lift the property up, you know, fix the foundation, patch it, renovate all these units, and then get the next people in that building and vacate the next building and kind of go, go, you know, 20 buildings, just kind of, you know, moving people around. So it was like a real logistical nightmare. And we started getting through it. And at the time we hired a management company that was my buddy, uh, my buddy, and we're still friends today, but uh, his partners were kind of running the management company and they weren't the best at communicating with the city and the code enforcement and, and the property inspection department. And so they, we started kind of not responding to some of the stuff that would come into the management company unbeknownst to me. And then all of a sudden we started becoming a target of the city code enforcement. And then, you know, we spent all this money and they would just come in and start nitpicking us. And then, uh, and then it started becoming a problem when they like, I felt like we were being targeted to be honest with you. And so we're like, okay, it's time to sell it. Let's get out of this thing. You know, the prop value went up, clutches went up a lot. And uh, as we kind of go to market, we end up picking a buyer. And then uh, the day they're going to do their physical inspections uh, it was our annual code enforcement inspection from the city of Farmers <laughs> Branch. It was probably semi-annual at that point because they were coming at us so often. Mm -hmm. And so we had to tell them like, hey, you can't do your inspections today because we got this as the city thing. And uh, so we ended up getting... I think it was like 50 pages, double-sided, 25 items a page and correction notices. And it was just like nitpicking us from, you know, some stuff was legitimate, but like they were, uh, it wasn't like we had a whole lot of saggy balconies. It was like, you didn't have a light cover over the light fixture in your closet, you know, th things like that. Yeah. And we had 30 days to correct it. And then, and then uh, they would like issue me all these citations. So at the end, it was like every other Tuesday, I'm going to court code enforcement court with a citation of my lawyer and there was just like this whole thing. So in the middle of the escrow, it was like really kind of nerve wracking. And I wasn't sure if like then the health, they set the health department on us and they said we had bed buzzing units. And then we had to walk every unit and get them like inspected and treat them. And if not, they were threatening on condemning our property. And it was like this whole thing. And at the end it was like, we had 
uh, and we had a contract where it was going to triple our money in this deal in like two years. So I wasn't sure if I was going to triple my money or lose it all. And I, was, I wasn't <laughs> yeah. sure what was going to happen. And fortunately, we, we got it sold. And then, then the city kind of backed off the next guy. The guy to pay a $6,000 fine or something. I was like, fine, here it is. And leave me alone. And I'm never coming back to your city again. And let's move on with my life. And so that uh, really crystallizes your um need to understand your situation and what city you're walking into and how aggressive code enforcement is and especially if you're buying an older distressed asset and then two the the need to make sure you're communicating effectively with the city which i just left that to the property management company because that's their job and they weren't doing it and by the time it kind of raised to my radar screen it was a problem and we had to like try to defuse the problem and we had already kind of poked the bear and they were they were coming for us so um you know you is a, it's a problem business when you do this and not everything goes perfect. And sure. that's a really good learning curve. Uh, it was a really good learning experience that, that I had through that, that situation. How did you move all the tenants who were in the first floors of these buildings? So we basically would looked at the rent roll, looked at the, the building and that's like, okay, we had uh, these vacancies and, you know, I don't, I think most of the buildings were probably 10, uh, 12, probably either eight or 12 units with half them up, half them down. So you have either four oh, okay. or six ground floor units. So we had the one that had, um, you know, two or three of the tenants vacants. We would try to move the tenant out or just give them a non-renewal. And then we like do that first building and then find the building that kind of had the similar situation. And then anyone on the, then we had then offered to transfer the people from a classic unit to an upgraded unit for the same yeah. rate for the remainder of their term and then we had hit them with an increase on when their expiration of the term was and then we just kind of like between either non-renewing these tenants or giving them a non-notice on renewal or forcing them to transfer we were able to kind of get through it over about a year period and and okay. uh, uh it was but it was quite a laborious process to, to say the least yeah no it sounds like it that was gonna be my question is how long did that take but a year is actually fairly quick yeah, maybe it was even a little less because we because towards the end we were just like you got to transfer, you know, and just it wasn't like a, an option. We we started getting a little more aggressive, just kind of get the thing over with. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we talked a lot about you know new investors getting into this. Is there any one thing you'd tell somebody looking to get into multifamily investing? Would you say, hey, start on the passive side or start in one of these clubs? What's your yeah. advice to people? I mean, you know, I think I think it kind of depends on your objective. So if you want to be um, a passive investor, uh, kind of first and foremost, you have a good job, you like it, you just want to kind of get get exposure to it. I mean, I think the biggest thing is you got to get some base level education so you kind of understand what you what you're looking at. So mm -hmm. podcasts like yours or my show, or there's you know, a few books out there that kind of give you your, your basics. Um, and then there's also some mentoring programs that have different levels that you kind of can take maybe like the lower level, which is kind of like a, maybe like a sophistication or a sophisticated investor training program where you kind of mm -hmm. learn how to vet some of these deals. I see a lot of people do that. Um, so that's, that's certainly a good way. And then, you know, if you're looking to be a passive, I mean, at the end of the day, the deal matters, the market matters, but your sponsor matters more. So getting hooked right. up with the right sponsor and the right market, someone that's, you know, uh, reputable, honest, you know, and, and knowledgeable and, and experienced, preferably mm -hmm. uh, that that kind of matters more to the investment um, performance and honestly, the market or, or the deal in a lot of ways. Um, so because because a, a good sponsor can kind of take a bad deal and, and pull out a ditch sometimes, but a, a bad sponsor can put a good deal in the ditch and uh, it'll be it'll <laughs> be hard. Um, so kind of think the bet on the, the jockey, not so much the horse, I guess, if uh, you want to use an analogy. 
if you're looking to be a sponsor and active, if you're young and you don't have any money, I mean, I would encourage you to maybe try to get a job in the business like like I had. Start working, like I said, either for a private equity firm, uh, a bank, or, or maybe an investment sales broker in the multifamily space, or if you want to do office in the office space, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and get paid to get that education and, and, and soak it in. And, and think about it as like what your what your clients are are looking at, and try to look at it from your clients' perspective, the owners of these things. Uh, that is a good way. If you have some money and you, and you want to get into it, you can certainly. Uh, you probably don't have the option to go make you know twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars a year as a as an analyst coming out yeah. of college. So uh, you know, I think getting some of the reputable man, uh, mentoring groups are certainly a way of going about it. Uh, and then, you know, co- co-sponsoring with some some other people. Certainly, I've seen a lot of people be successful. They they kind of pool their collective resources together and uh, maybe get with someone that's a little bit more seasoned, but maybe doesn't have all the money for earnest money for down payments or whatever. You know, uh, you need to find a partner. That's a lot of people in this business are successful, uh, have partnerships like like I like I do. And you find someone that has um, different but complementary skill sets for what you're doing. So if you're Mr. Salesman, and you want to be outgoing, maybe find, finding someone that's just like you is probably not the best partner to have. Maybe finding someone that's a little bit more analytical that can live in the spreadsheet a little bit more, probably be the better partner for you to kind of strategically hook up with. And mm-hmm. that way you can focus on your your various strengths and you guys will be a lot more successful than if you find someone that's got the, the same personality as you because you guys will both want to do the same thing. And that's not really uh, what, you, what you need to really have to, to form the, the right partnership. Those are some just general uh, observations around that topic. Absolutely. So you you talked about there's some investment clubs out there that will teach you to be a sophisticated investor. Any that you recommend or any resources you recommend to learn about? You know, there's uh, uh, sitting in Texas, there's a lot of groups out there. and A lot of groups that kind of popped up and a lot Mm -hmm. of kind of. Uh, that over the last several years, so I don't, I can't speak to too many of them. But mm-hmm. the one, the two that I've seen that have had people actually be successful, I've seen firsthand. The Lifestyles Unlimited group, which they're based out of Houston, they have an office in Dallas and San Antonio and Austin. I think maybe Atlanta now too. Um, I think they're a pretty reputable group. And then uh, offshoot of that was uh, uh, the Dallas Benner got in Brad Summerock. He he broke yep. off and started his program. And I've known Brad a long time because when he was back at Lifestyles and I've seen him, uh, seen many, many people come out of his program being successful. So I think they teach the fundamentals of the business the right way. And to the other ones out there, I'm, I'm sure there's probably some other decent ones out there. I just can't speak to it. But, you know, just having um, part, part of part of the best benefits of these investment clubs, especially the ones that cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars like like those two do, um, is to be able to not only get the uh, the information, and maybe some ongoing support, but more than that, it's about being able to get a plugged-in network where you can, um, you know, network with other passive investors, other lead investors, get all of your vendors, your debt, your management, insurance, all those type of things in, in one room. And it's a good way to kind of shortcut the stuff that took me, you know, the better part of my entire banking career to kind of develop and understand. <laughs> you can shortcut that process in, in a pretty, uh, pretty efficient way if you can pay the price to walk in the door. So I think that when you're looking at a program, part of it's the education, which, which is certainly important, but almost more important is do I have access to the, the resources I need to kind of put this together? Because when you're doing a deal, I think of it like a, a, like a puzzle, Jordan, you know, like you got all these pieces of the puzzle, you got to kind of put them together. And when you do, the picture's clear. And that's kind of like doing a transaction. You got all these different pieces you got to put together and eventually 
when they all fit right, you can do your deal and, and, and go forward. So that is what uh, the right type of group would, would get you set up to, to do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, passive investing may be the way to go. So I, I can't tell you how many people I personally talk to who want all the benefits of passive investing, but think they're going to get it actively, maybe in smaller deals. So I'd encourage anybody listening to, to reach out to some of these groups and, and learn more about both. So learn about passive, yeah. learn about active. You might find out that the one you think you thought you wanted to get into is not what you need to do. Yep. So uh, Michael, real quick, couple more questions here. Do you have a favorite business or mindset book you recommend people read? I'm not the biggest reader in the world, but uh, you know, the ones, uh, but it turned into a friend of mine now, the, the book I, uh, after I was actually doing this, I picked his book up and read it as uh, Ken McElroy. And he's got um, two books for all, he's got these maybe four books, but two books that I think uh, would be good for people to, to, to read if you're interested is the ABC's of Real Estate Investing yep. and the Advanced Real Estate Investing Guide. And Ken kind of lays out his business model where, which I think is a very sound business model and kind of explains a lot of the, the terminology and stuff. And uh, he uh, he does it in a very succinct way and his business model is probably 95% aligned with what I do. So I agree with it. So it must be, uh, must be the smart way to go, right? <laughs> he was on your show recently, correct? He was, yeah. So Ken, I've known Ken for several years. I got I got met up, uh, met up with him through the Real Estate Guys, which has mm-hmm. a popular podcast. And I was faculty at a few of their events for many years. And so I've had the Pleasure going on two different cruises to the Real Estate yeah. Guys cruise. And uh, randomly, uh, the last summer vacation we were able to take is in 2019. I go to uh, Malfi, Italy with uh, my, my wife and my in-laws. And we have a whole whole trip. And I'm just walking down after eating lunch at a cafe. I look over and there's Ken McElroy and his girlfriend. Oh, wow. It's in Amalfi, Italy of all, of all random places. And uh, nice. so it's kind of neat to... Uh, Need to see uh, a familiar face in a very, very far off place. Yeah. Uh, so we probably should have known that the world is about to come to an end. If everyone's uh, real estate guys are traveling in exotic places like that, it's probably peak cycle. So maybe mm-hmm. we should have saw COVID come in at that moment. huh? Yeah. And just for, for reference for everybody listening, Amalfi is a relatively small town. So the fact that you guys ran into each other over there, and it's not a huge area, um, very popular tourist destination, but yeah, it's a, Awesome stuff. Real estate guys are great. Kim McElroy's got great stuff too. Um, so Michael, how can people get a hold of you and how can they work with you? Yeah, there's i uh, I'll give a couple of resources here. Really the, the thing that I think is the best way to find a little more information about me is if uh, you guys are listening to this show and you're listening this long, you're probably an apartment nerd. So if uh, you like that, I got the show for you. It's the, uh, uh, my new show, which is a multifamily investing show with Michael Becker. Mm-hmm. That's a real original name there, but uh, you can find it on uh, YouTube, which is a highly produced video show. So I recorded in a studio. I uh, get some pretty pretty high level guests and you know brokers that have sold you know billions and billions of dollars of real estate and owners like Ken that have owned you know tens of thousands of apartment units. That's who we're trying to have on the show. Uh, there's a lot of shows out there that uh, that are great, good good information. Uh, but this show is kind of more catering on the next level. I'm trying to think of this like graduate school mm-hmm. uh, compared to uh, to regular college is really what I'm aiming for. So hopefully we're pulling that off. Uh, our URL is, if you just want to go to the website, is www.multifamilyinvestingshow.com. I appreciate a watch or a listen. Well, my company that I, that I run, uh, my day job here is uh, SPI Advisory. So you can find more information about us at our website, which is www.spiadvisory.com. That's S-P-I, like spy, advisory.com. 
there's a contact us form. You can fill that out. And I'm always happy to uh, send out information if you want to get onto our uh, investor distribution list or learn a little bit more about what we do. Awesome. And that's a strategic property investment, correct? That's right. That's what it stands for. Awesome. Uh, last question, probably a little harder for somebody who lives in Dallas, but what is your favorite restaurant in Austin? You know, when I come in town, uh, we'll do some closing dinner. So I'll give you two. It used to be uh, ATX Casita, I believe is what it was called. It's in mm -hmm. the nice apartment buildings right downtown. They have a really good uh, ribeye. It's called El Jefe. So that's a really good, you kind of share it with the tables and uh, empanadas and a few other things. It's really good. And recently we went to a place called Red Ash, which yep. is also downtown. It's like an Italian steakhouse. That was excellent. So uh, those are two places I, I really enjoy going to. Yeah, I love Red Ash. We've been there a few times and great place. So absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, Michael. Everybody, if you're looking to learn more about Michael, go to the Multifamily Investing Show or spiadvisory.com. He is all over the place, pretty easy to find, but those are the best places to find him. Thank you so much, Michael. You have a great day. Thanks, Jordan.